Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 685. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have some very important news. I'll tell you what's coming in the show first, and then we'll get into the kind of meat of the matter with news. So today's main fiction is The Undertow Jackpot by Carl Elkura. So we have some very sad news and some very happy news. Yes, the sad news is we'll get this over with because it's still gut-wrenching. Our good editor, Fred Heimbar, is stepping down from the plate there, stepping down from the the control room and going off in his own little <laughs> pod into the kind of deep space. And when I when I got Fred's email, it was just like, oh, Fred, no, I don't, you know what I mean? Kind of, Fred's almost like a comfort blanket. Do you know what I mean? He kind of just, you know, logistics-wise, the story's there and it's just, it just kind of works. But Fred's been kind of from the, like, the, with the sto- sofa, listening to the sofa and just commenting maybe the first episode we ever did. Do you know what I mean? So hopefully, Fred, you'll stick around, you know, and kind of be involved with the sofa in some way or form, but a big, huge thank you. You know what I mean? It's just been, it's been lovely having you on, kind of relying on, relying on you quite a bit. You know, these kind of, this time you've been editor and the stories you've picked have just been fantastic. You know what I mean? Well done. Just absolutely well done. We are sad to see you go. But on the flip side, well, I had to kind of, 
put out a little shout there because you know, I'd have to get my hands dirty again and no, too, too kind of long in the tooth kind of for that. I wouldn't know how to actually how to do it now. So put an email out and what a fantastic response. And But there was one email there, one email that just shone, you know what I mean? And I was kind of, oh, never. Is this, is this real? Is this true? So I'm very proud to pronounce that Nick Mamatas is now going to be the editor for Starship Sova. And I'm just so excited for the future, what Nick can bring with his eye on picking, like, kind of science fiction stories. It's just going to be awesome, man. Do you know what I mean? Nick's got such a name in the field as an editor. I'll read his bio in a second, so, you know, if no one's, or not many people kind of knows about him, again, I'll read his bio. But from my point of view... You know, I heard about Nick Mamatas. Oh, man. I know it sounds like years ago, Nick, years ago. And it was actually through Fiction Crawler, Matthew Sanborn Smith mentioned, you know, like this, the story or stories by Nick Mamatas. And it's from there that you kind of yeah, built up a kind of respect and then to realise, you know, Nick was, you know, willing to throw his hat in the ring. Fantastic. So welcome aboard, Mr. Nick Mamatas, as our editor. Now, there will be a kind of little transition there. We've got to kind of get Nick up to speed. The Royal We, Fred, has got to get Nick up to speed as well. And that'll be, you know, over the kind of coming weeks, just kind of getting things settled and that. But I will mention once Nick kind of, you know, that's his story. It'll start from there. I'll give a mention and then we're, we're, we're rolling with Nick's eye on looking for great stories. So... If you want to have a, you know, a cracker trying to get onto Starship Sova, you've got to go through Nick Mamatas now, the kind of fantastic editor. So I'll read you his bio in case you are not aware of what Nick's been up to. Nick Mamatas is a writer, editor and anthologist. He co-edited Clark's World magazine in the early days, then spent more than a decade heading up the Hakushuru imprint of Japanese science fiction, fantasy and horror in translation for Viz Media. Nick's anthologies include Wonder and Glory Forever, awe-inspiring Lovecraftian fiction, the Locust Award nominees, The Future is Japanese, and Hanzai Japan, and the Bram Stoker Award-winning Haunted Legends. His fiction and editorial work have been variously nominated for the Hugo, the World Fantasy, the Shirley Jackson, and the International Horror Guild Awards. Yes, we are very proud to have Nick Mamatas on board as our editor. Nick, welcome aboard, sir. Find your cabin. <laughs> Come up to the deck. Now, we've got one tiny more bit of news coming, and I'll mention that in a little bit second. But at the end of the story, I'm going to give you a little plug for a book. Now, when you kind of, you know, Starship Sofa has been going for a long time, you get numerous emails, you know, like, I've wrote this book, I've wrote this book, and you get numerous, numerous publishers trying to push their wares on you but i got an email today and it just the, the kind the tone of the email and the kind of the description of this collection of short stories just you know what i mean just kind of pip me interest there so i'm going to give it a little plug at the end of this show and just see which one you think it is and if you might you know go over there and have a look so listen to the end and i'll tell you that so, like I mentioned, the main fiction today is The Undertow Jackpot by Carl Elkura. And this story first appeared in issue 3, August 2016, of Compelling Science Fiction. The <laughs> This is all there is. El, Carl Elkura is a writer from Canada. 
That's it. That's all we need to know about Carl. So, Carl, thank you very much for this. And the narrator is Will Staggle. Will Staggle lives in Tucson, Arizona, where he works as a creative professional by day and as a songwriter and musician with his bandmate Stacy by night. So together, they are liquid centers. At the moment, he's probably reading or rereading Leviathan Falls by James S.A. Corey. And mourning the end of a great sci-fi series. And that little bit of news that I kind of hinted at just before there is Will is actually coming on board Starship Sova as an audio engineer. So look out for some good things coming by Will as well. He's got some great ideas and, you know, he'll be in there in the thick of it, kind of getting these MP3s all sorted and, and neat as you can there for Starship Sova. Thank you, Will. On board, sir. Piped on. Find your cabin. I'll meet you in the <laughs> in the mess room later. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present the Undertow Jackpot by Carl Elcura, read to you by Will Stegel. Once he caught the scent, one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It didn't take long for Ralph Beaudry, who was smarter than the average bear, even if he said so himself, to figure out what the government was up to. Later, he reflected this was due to three reasons. First, because he was an inquisitive teleporter technician, whose main duty in his large warehouse of an office in Waco, Texas, was to receive and safely dispose of old generation teleporters. Second, he had mad yabbing foo skills, which had helped him get through most of his theoretical classes at school, including at the Technical Institute in Boulder, that had certified him for maintenance and repair teleporters from first to fourth generation, particularly since he had even trained himself to search his phone one-handed and to glean the information he needed with a single glance. And the third reason was luck, in the form of a passing comment made by someone in a frozen foods aisle at the Walmart on Franklin, pushing and pulling a gaggle of unruly kids and yelling at one of them, a boy who looked about his own son's age, that you better start behaving and setting a good example because there's four more where you come from. Those words stopped him dead in his tracks that day, right in front of the frozen $2 pizzas that Lindsay never let him eat. What kind of nutritional value could possibly be getting from a $2 pie, she used to say when he insisted on loading up their cart in the first few years of their marriage. 
The large, worn-down lady's tired but loud voice rang through his mind like an echo. You better start behaving and setting a good example, because there's four more where you came from. And pieces started to fall into place. The teleportation devices were sent to his facility for decommissioning, where other technicians had the very hazardous job of dismantling and disposing of the intricate cables, tubes, wires, boards, plates, and most hazardous of all, uranium core that provided enough power to cause a bending of space-time, so that one teleporter lined up with another on a quantum level, and passengers could move from one to the next like stepping from one car to another in a two-car train with no engine. His job, after the large rectangular boxes had been gutted, and most of their plates removed, was to travel down the warehouse in his forklift, stepping into the skeletal teleporters, carefully removing each computer component and inspecting it, then determining if that piece was still serviceable or if it needed to be junked. Memory cards had to be treated with special care. There was no need for him to cycle through those memory cards and examine their logs. He only had to record the serial number of each card, run it through an overriding algorithm 30 times, then junk the card if his instruments were showing an error rate above acceptable level, or place it in a container with other memory cards if it still had usable life. There was no need for him to cycle through those memory cards and examine their logs, except that he was curiouser than the average bear. Acceptable level, he thought, that day in Walmart. There's an acceptable level of error, and this very expensive computer equipment gets junked if it doesn't meet the standard. Because to do otherwise is to invite an unacceptable level of risk. The reward of his career-long inquisitiveness had been the accumulation of several interesting facts. Sometimes a family of four vacationed in Cuba, and a family of three returned. Sometimes a couple and their child went to San Lucia, but only the couple came back. He'd found dozens of such cases from all across America, especially because he started looking for them after stumbling on the first few. By the fourth or fifth, he thought something nefarious was going on, and dreamed of the accolades he'd get for uncovering the truth about a family dumping an undesirable child, murdering their offspring, or leaving them behind or giving them away, maybe selling them. A bit of time spent on Yabbing, however, disabused him of that notion. These families were simply the unlucky ones, victims to the statistical god that had demanded a sacrifice of one child drowned for every so many that swam in the hotel pool. One child grabbed by the undertow and dragged away to a watery grave. But now, now he thought again, because there's more where you came from. He wasn't finished gathering half the items in the list Lindsay had made for him, but he crumpled it up and threw it in the trash, then paid for the groceries in his cart and rushed home. Lindsay was making mac and cheese for dinner, and it smelled great. Derek was on the couch in the living room, leaning back on the cushions with his feet up, the goggles on his head and his lanky fingers typing furiously in the air. Ralph dropped off his bags on the kitchen counter, gave Lindsay a kiss when she tilted her head to give him her cheek as she chopped cucumbers for the salad, and told her he'd somehow misplaced her list, but had purchased as many things she wanted as he could remember. Then in the living room, he ripped the goggles off of Derek's head, thinking again that the boy's hair was too long, but Derek hated going to the barber, and even at eight, felt he had the right to insist that his mom not cut his hair, after she'd botched it the summer before. "'Shouldn't you be doing homework?' Ralph said subconsciously, wiping the bands of the goggles with the sleeve of his shirt. "'I was doing homework,' Derek said, sitting up blinking as his vision adjusted to reality again. "'No one types that quickly for homework. You forget your dad's smarter than the average bear, huh? Now go help your mom with dinner. I have something to do for work.' "'It's Saturday,' Derek said longingly, "'and I didn't save yet.' but at least he'd gotten off the couch and to his feet. 
Ralph handed back the goggles. Derek slipped them over his head and typed furiously for a few moments. Homework, my ass, Ralph thought, then gave them back to his father. Typing just as furiously, Ralph discovered the following facts on that Saturday evening before Lindsay called him to dinner. 1. Those families, their names were still in his browsing history, because until that point he hadn't thought it necessary to mask his activities. Those families, with few exceptions, had won their tropical vacations. 2. Those families, with few exceptions, had a troubled child on their hands. The mom or dad had posted on some forum, asking for guidance on dealing with a child who just wouldn't listen, wouldn't do as they were told. Or he read a local news report about alleyway fires set in the neighborhood where the family in question lived. Or Ralph was able to turn up a school report left unencrypted that mentioned the child's behavioral problems. Three, those families who returned with one less child, no matter how many children they had to start with, returned with few exceptions missing the troubled child. Can't blame the statistical god, Ralph thought at that finding. He's a bastard who takes the good with the bad and doesn't mind either way. Four, those families, with few exceptions, even when they took to the forum's pre-trip to lament their difficulty coping with the troubled child, did not, post-trip, take to the forums to lament the loss of said troubled child. A simple memorial was held for family and friends back home. Then the child was completely forgotten, according to the records left behind on the internet. Now, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 equaled in Ralph's mind a simple if ugly scheme. The Smith family had a hard time dealing with troubled, troublesome Johnny. Hire some kind of hit company to get rid of that more trouble than he's worth and there's more where you came from child which the hit company does by flying the family south and making trouble Johnny's death seem accidental. That theory didn't sit entirely well with Ralph as he munched quietly on his mac and cheese. Couldn't an accident happen just as easily and far more cheaply at home as at a tropical location? And why the ruse about winning the vacation? But after dinner, fighting off Derek, who went skulking into his room, complaining that they didn't have enough money to afford two goggles like most of the kids in his school, Ralph went looking for the money trail and uncovered two more facts. Five, the families came back with not less, but more money to their name. Lots more. Within a month or two of returning, some were able to buy out their homes. Others settled all their debts. Others bought a new hover car. Some took paid vacations right back to the place they'd won their free vacations. The one trip was fully insured by Thomas and Tears Brokers LTD, and the child's death had paid out. The undertow jackpot, Ralph thought of it. Even with the fifth item... He might still have convinced himself that Johnny was the victim of a hired hit. Shouldn't have pissed off Mommy and Daddy so many times, Ralph thought. And perhaps even an insurance scam. But the sixth fact, hard won after hours and hours of searching. After ignoring Lindsay, asking him twice, and then ordering him to come to bed already, it's four in the morning. The sixth fact made one thing clear. The insurance brokers who underwrote the contests didn't underwrite anything else. The companies who ran the contests didn't really run anything else. It was all a shell game. And from the ways and methods that those companies were registered and incorporated, from the design of their websites, from the tools and language they used, Ralph recognized the fingerprints of the rigid, structured bureaucracy for which he himself worked. When he went to sleep as the sun was rising, he didn't fully understand how all the pieces fit together. But he intended to find out. On that bright and early Sunday morning, exhaustion weighing on him like a blanket of lead, the thought never crossed his mind that he would ever consider giving them Derek if child sacrifices were what they were after. Only that he would use his son as bait to expose the U.S. government, or some secret parts thereof, for conducting nefarious activities and reap the rewards. The pitch came on the third day of their holiday. It had taken three years of careful planning to get there. 
meetings with Derek's teachers at the beginning of the year, planting the suspicion in their minds that Derek would be the one to watch, dropping lit matches in the neighbor's trash cans a handful every year, posting anonymously on forums, wondering what to do if you suspected your child was setting fires. He didn't like to keep things from Lindsay, but he knew that she'd force him to call off the pursuit if she found out what he was doing. Then, one day, in the high, humid heat of June in Waco, Derek came home with the news that his receipt for the yearbook was the winning ticket for a contest run by the printing company. He'd won the family a one-week all-inclusive trip to Barbados in August, and it was everything Ralph could do to bite his tongue at the insufferable way Derek gloated for the next two months. Yeah, son, he thought a hundred times, but never said. You were born with a horseshoe up your butt. Never won anything in your whole life, but I guess your number just came up, and none of it has anything to do, oh, nothing at all, with how smart your daddy is. All the promotional material talked about the sun at their sunny destination. But Ralph didn't care about that. Waco had all the sun one could soak up and lots more to spare. No, Ralph was infused with a sense of validation and anticipation. He'd been right, and now he would expose the government and become famous the world over. They'd make a holodrama about him, he was sure. And if he were honest with himself, he was a little intrigued by other things the brochures talked about. Lindsay's and even Derek's excitement was contagious, and he started thinking about how much good it would do him to swim in the ocean all day, floating back on endless waves, how much fun it would be to do laps in the resort pool under a Caribbean moon and Caribbean stars late into the night, how relaxing to wear out the underwater stool at the hotel swim-up bar, drinking rum punch until his stomach couldn't stand it. He also started to want something the hotel brochures didn't and couldn't mention. He wanted to see Lindsay strutting around in a bikini. He'd seen her lots in her underthings and even in the sexy lingerie she bought around his birthday every year, but a bikini was something different. Lindsay in a bikini was something different, and he hadn't seen her in one, since before Derek was born. Derek was a pain, insolent and moody, grumpy one minute, jumping off the walls with joy in the next. But Ralph only realized now how much his relationship with his high school sweetheart had changed in the last 11 years. The next two months went by in an excited flash. Then... Too early on a Saturday morning in late August, he and his wife and son were at DFW, getting their things past security, then lining up in the long but fast-moving lane of teleporters, being watched across the pane of glass by the seated, waiting, tired-looking passengers who could only afford to travel by airplane. Before too long, it was time for the Beaudry family to board their teleporter. Ralph had been servicing them since he'd graduated seven years before, but this was his first time riding in one. Right before they boarded, While waiting behind the yellow line, the doors of the teleporter nearest them swooshed shut as it whisked the passengers away to their destination. Lindsay turned to him, concern and fear in her almond eyes, and asked him again if he was sure teleportation was perfectly safe. It made him feel good. He didn't fully understand the science behind teleportation. He could spit out formulas, but they didn't mean much to him. And his job was really not very complicated, but it made him feel good that his wife viewed him as a teleportation expert. Perfectly safe, he said, taking her hand in his and squeezing it. Nothing to worry about at all. He didn't know if that were true or not, but he thought it probably was. He never serviced a teleporter that had blown its core, for example, and didn't consider until after they'd pushed their trolley of luggage onto the teleporter that maybe those really bad cases were buried in the desert or sent someplace that was equipped to deal quietly with decontamination. But it was too late. The doors closed behind them, and the doors opened in front of them, and they stepped into the other cubicle. Then the doors on the other side of that cubicle opened and they stepped out into Grantley Adams Airport, went through customs, with everyone else, even those who'd arrived by plane, Ralph thought with disappointment, and were met by a nice bond man 
who drove them to the hotel. It was noon by the time they checked in and dropped off their bags, off in the spacious rooms, rooms plural, because they had one large room with a king-sized bed that was adjoined to a smaller room with a double bed by a door that could only be locked or unlocked by someone in the larger room. Ralph had a moment's wonder why they'd gone to such extravagance, but then he looked at Lindsay's shapely bottom as she bent over their luggage to fish out her swimwear, and he didn't wonder anymore and was just grateful. They spent that morning in the hotel pool, Ralph picking up and throwing Derek, who was a scrawny little thing, diving under the water and pinching Lindsay's bottom, which was a meaty little thing, just having such a good time that Ralph forgot about the swim-up bar and the rum punch until lunchtime, which they had served to them on the loungers by the pool, and then again until dinner, which they had at one of the hotel's restaurants. They had a similar agenda the next day, and the day after that, swimming in the ocean when they got bored of the pool, and in the pool when the salty water of the Atlantic got tiring. Years of tension and stress melted away in those countless hours spent swimming and relaxing. It was like a regular family vacation, and Ralph could almost forget why he was there. But at some point that Monday night, while Lindsay and Derek were asleep in their rooms, Ralph was catching his breath after a few late-night laps, his arms stretched across the edge of the pool, when he looked up and saw a woman, tall and slender in a flowing dress that was translucent in the moonlight, walk across the wooden bridge that stretched over the pool. She stopped at the top of the bridge and looked down at him. He tried to ignore her, couldn't because she stared at him continuously, brazenly. He decided to do more laps, but her gaze followed him wherever he went, so he finally decided to call it a night instead. She walked toward him as he grabbed his towel from the back of the lounger and dried off. Hi, she said. Her blonde hair was pulled back in a tight ponytail, her eyes shining with the reflected light of the moon and the overhead lamp. Hi, he said. Do I know you? Not yet, she said coyly. Oh, listen, I'm married. I know, she said. And I'm from the Harrisburg Printing Company. The pitch, Ralph thought with a small momentary thrill. Here it is. Momentary because what seemed clever and thrilling from the comfort of his living room now just seemed fraught with danger. Oh, it's very nice to meet you. He shook her hand clumsily. She regarded him the whole time with her coy smile, which unnerved him. Would you come with me? She said, finally releasing his hand. We have an offer we'd like to discuss with you. It's late, Ralph said, wrapping the towel around himself as the cold night air raised goosebumps on his skin. I know, she said again, so coy. But we wanted to catch you alone. We would prefer not to involve your wife if possible. Is that a threat? Ralph thought. But they didn't know what he knew or what he planned. They wouldn't have a reason to threaten him. I'm not exactly dressed for... You're on holidays, she said. Relax. You're dressed perfectly. He pulled his t-shirt over his head and then shoved his feet into his flip-flops. The woman was already walking away. He followed her, feeling vulnerable in his wet swimwear and thin shirt with Captain America logo on the front and with his flip-flopping steps reverberating through the quiet, empty hotel hallways. The woman, floating behind him like an apparition in her ghostly dress, reached the end of one hallway and took stairs up, then walked down another hallway, through steel doors that looked like the entrance to a warehouse or factory. Through more hallways, up more and more stairs, finally stopping in front of a wooden office door. Right through there, Mr. Bedry, Dr. Moore is expecting you. Large windows lined the back of Dr. Moore's office. Moonlight streamed through, and in the distance the ocean looked like a painting of clouds and waves. Dr. Moore himself sat at his desk in front of the windows, his face illuminated by a subtle table lamp and his terminal. He was younger than Ralph had expected, about Ralph's own age, with a thin face lined with a thin beard. He silently indicated to Ralph that he should take the seat opposite him. 
Ralph walked toward the back of the room and sat down. Welcome, Mr. Beaudry, the doctor said. His voice was professional and quiet. Do you want me to turn on the overhead lights? Ralph swallowed uncomfortable, but Dr. Moore's relaxed, gentle voice helped him to calm down. That is fine, I don't mind. I prefer it, especially this time of night. Dr. Moore turned the terminal on his desk so that both he and Ralph could look at the screen. Ralph looked, but all he saw were rows and columns of graphs. I recognize how late it is, Dr. Moore said. I understand my assistant explained that we wanted to talk to you alone. Ralph nodded. I won't waste your time, the doctor continued. These graphs are based on an algorithm I devised myself. I can input certain facts about a person, and I can drive different projections, probabilities about their outcomes. This is life imprisonment. A thin finger tapped the screen. This one here is likelihood of committing murder. And this one is suicide. Terribly steep curve, isn't it? Ralph nodded. Do you have any idea whose life these graphs represent? Ralph's voice broke when he said his son's name. Dr. Moore leaned back for a moment, a satisfied smile on his face. Then he nodded. You're a very astute man, Mr. Beaudry. I see we won't be taking too much of your time at all. You realize, of course, that we're responsible for your son winning the trip to Barbados. That it wasn't by chance? Yes, that's clear now. Very good. You are smarter than the average bear. Now, according to my algorithms, which are accurate 99 times out of 100, the best case scenario is that your son will become a petty criminal. More likely, his fingers danced across the screen again, is that he'll commit severe and significant crimes, including murder. Obviously, we don't want that. But you see this tip here? Dr. Moore's thin finger indicated the part of the graph he meant. This tip right here represents the likelihood that the subject will engage in acts of terrorism. Obviously, that's something we must avoid at all costs. Um, Ralph said, his discomfort returning and bringing a bunch of his friends with it. Terrorism? The kid's moody, Ralph thought. That's all, just a pain in the ass most days. Then he reminded himself that Dr. Morse graphs included three years of facts about Derek. They weren't actually facts about Derek. There is a procedure, Dr. Moore was saying, leaning back in his black leather chair again, practically disappearing into the shadows so that he became almost a disembodied voice. That's one way to refer to killing my son, Ralph thought. Totally painless. We will take Derek, we can do it tonight while your wife sleeps, and perform a very basic operation on his brain. We can do it right here in the office next door. The incision is tiny. We go in from the back of the neck, up to his brain, snip, snip. Change his behavior just like that. Change his life outcomes. Thwart the possibility of terrorism with one simple operation. Right, Ralph thought. That's your pitch? We can help your kid, no big deal, just a simple operation? Then, this is unbelievable. Your kid died in surgery. Who could have predicted that? So much for your algorithms and graphs, Ralph thought. But this would be bad for us, and bad for you, and bad for your country, and bad for the memory of your child, the potential terrorist, if it got out. So here's some hush money to pretend the kid drowned accidentally. Dr. Moore leaned forward so his face was illuminated by the table light again. I should tell you that there is a single drawback. Your son will suffer from a lifetime of headaches. It can't be helped, unfortunately, that we keep searching for a solution. But even if that's the cost, it's better than the alternatives, don't you think? Yes. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Do you have any questions? Ralph shook his head. The moon was a full white orb dotted with black. Wonderful. Do we have your authorization then to perform the operation? Do you understand the drawbacks, but also the benefits? I understand, Ralph said immediately. 
He hated when people asked him if he understood and always answered that he did, whether he did or didn't. Good, Dr. Moore said. You've made the right decision. Here, he slid a paper-thin tablet, which illuminated when he touched it across the desk. Have a read through that, and press your thumb on the bottom if you agree. And if I don't, Ralph said, not touching the tablet, which dimmed again. There's nothing in there that should cause you any concern. Standard legal text, that's all. I mean, what if I don't agree to the operation? Dr. Moore shrugged. We can't force you. Not yet, anyway. He looked at Ralph and smiled disarmingly. This is pretty unconventional, wouldn't you say? Dr. Moore's wide gaze seemed to sweep his office, the resort in perhaps all of Barbados, in an instant. How many government agencies have offices in the best resorts in the world? How many have the authority to teleport you and your family to one of these resorts? You see, the administration believes in what we're doing. They just need us to collect a bit more evidence. One day, we hope to make the procedure mandatory when there's near certainty that to do otherwise is to all but ensure the subject will go on to commit heinous crimes up to terrorism. So yes, you can refuse, and you'd get to enjoy the rest of your vacation, go home and deal with the consequences of Derek's behavior, knowing all the while that you had the chance to help him, and you refused. In that darkened room, with the moon high in the dark sky, Ralph could almost doubt everything he'd thought would happen. This wasn't the pitch he'd been expecting. He didn't expect to sign paperwork. What if the operation were legitimate? Would it even harm Derek, or might it help him not be such a pain so often? But if there were no operation, and this was a ploy to get him to give up his son to a state-sanctioned execution, before Derek had committed any kind of crime except be a nuisance most of the time, could he take that chance? A month ago, in his frustration, if you got him in a particularly dark mood, he might have said yes. Lindsay and he were still young. There's plenty more where you came from. But the kid wasn't so bad after all, and certainly not so bad away from the stress of school and work. Dr. Moore was looking at him with raised eyebrows. In a moment, he thought through the following calculus. If he refused to sign, things were over. He wouldn't get to expose the government because he wouldn't have any evidence. All of his work and research and cleverness would amount to nothing. But if he signed, he'd force Dr. Moore's hand into acting against Derek. Ralph could call the police and catch them red-handed, rescue his son, and be her hero to him and Lindsay. He picked up the tablet, which sprang to life again hopefully, and scanned through the text. He pressed his thumb on the square at the bottom of the screen. You really have made the right decision, Mr. Beaudry, Dr. Moore said. He stretched out his hand and took back the tablet. Ralph couldn't swallow all of a sudden. Had he just signed his own son's execution order? What if he couldn't stop them in time? He opened his mouth to say he changed his mind, but out of the corner of his eye he noticed a shadow falling on him. He looked up just in time to see Dr. Moore's pretty assistant, something in her hand, a needle, pressing into the side of his neck before he had a chance to react. Ralph jumped out of his chair and pushed the woman back hard so that she fell to the ground. What did you do? What did you do to me? He felt no different than before, and his gaze jumped from the girl to the ground to the calm doctor and back again. Relax, Dr. Moore said. Just relax. He stood and walked around his table, helped his assistant off the ground, and thanked her for her help. She left the room. Ralph had been massaging the side of his neck, even though he felt nothing there and still felt no different. What did you do? He said again. Answer me. Dr. Moore picked up the fallen chair and silently indicated that Ralph should sit down, then walked around the desk again and took his own seat. When Ralph sat down, Dr. Moore said, we injected you with a sedative that will put you to sleep for a few hours shortly, another minute or two. Ralph tried to slow the panic in his heart. What? 
Why? Dr. Moore picked up the tablet. We don't have much time, so I'll speak quickly. What you signed here has nothing to do with your son. Those charts aren't your son's. We know you made up most of that stuff about him. But anyway, children are children. Their behavior can still be corrected. They're still learning how to see themselves, how to see others, how to relate in the world. I could go on, but you don't have time. It's adults that my department is primarily interested in. Adults whose long-developed neural pathways and connections are set as if in stone. We go into your brain and block off some of those old connections and gently chisel new ones. A bit of cognitive therapy and the reprogramming will be complete. It only takes a few hours. Our success rate is very high. You can't do this, Ralph said, trying to stand up but finding that his legs wouldn't respond to him. I know you're going to kill me. I know. He started to fade away. Relax, Mr. Beaudry. Dr. Moore's disembodied voice came to him. We need you to relax. We found the surgery is most effective and the side effects minimized when you're completely relaxed. That's why we brought you here. Isn't Barbados paradise? We're not going to kill you. Those stories you found were planted for you to find, a little lure to help us find people like you. People who would put their own child's life in danger for a chance to win a vacation. Or to be a hero. Can you still hear me? Ralph tried to nod, but didn't know if he succeeded. Everything was dark now. Without this procedure, Mr. Beaudry, there is a high degree of likelihood that you will cause a lot of suffering in the future, to yourself and others. You've already agreed that this procedure is worth it if it avoids that outcome. One day this procedure will be mandatory, but for now, we are. Dr. Moore's voice started to fade, as if Ralph's own ears were closing shut on him. He felt Lindsay stirring beside him and woke up a dull ache at the back of his head. Ugh, he said. Lindsay sat up and stretched her slender arms, yawning. That was the best sleep I've had in a long time, she said. Her own punch is a killer. She looked down at him. You okay? Yeah, he said. Just a headache. She leaned over to kiss his cheek. He got up and drew back the curtains. The sun was shining high in Barbados. People were already staking out their spot on the beach. The ocean sent wave after wave towards the shore. The pool beneath them was empty, still and crystal blue. He almost wanted to dive in from where they stood. Lindsay coughed to get his attention. He dived back into bed and sat on top of his wife as she giggled. Suddenly, someone else was on top of them. Derek, did we forget to lock the door, Ralph thought. His son jumping on the bed and asking in excited tones what they were going to do today. Could they go to the beach? Would his mom help him build a sandcastle? There was a safari he saw in the brochure in his room. Could they go on that? Derek, that's enough, his mother said, sliding out of the way so that she wasn't trampled by Derek's excited jumping on the bed as he yelled for them to, Come on, come on, I've been waiting for you to wake up. We're wasting the day. You know your dad doesn't like all this noise first thing in the morning. And this was true. For the briefest moment, a flash of annoyance went through Ralph's mind. But it was gone as soon as he was aware of it. He tackled Derek, pinning him to the bed, the kid giggling as much as his mom had a few moments ago. Ralph said calmly as his son tried to squirm and escape from his dad's iron grip. Okay, fine, let's go, Derek. Come on, why are you just lying there? Come on, you're wasting the day. Let's go, son. Finally, he let him go. Go wash your face and put on nice clothes, his mom said. We're going down for breakfast before we do anything else. Derek bounded off to his room. Thank you for being patient with him, she said, smiling. Ralph shrugged. He hadn't been very patient with Derek in the past, it was true. Derek had upset Ralph so many times that the least annoyance could set his dad off. But now he felt different somehow, as if all that baggage had been wiped away. As if he were starting fresh. The jackpot of the benevolent undertow, he thought, and felt that he'd had that thought before. A day at the beach will let the waves take away years of stress from your soul 
and carried them off to be forgotten forever in the deep ocean. The dull ache at the back of his head still bothering him, though. He went into the bathroom to look for aspirin in his toiletry bag. And there you go. Big thank you to Carl. Carl, thank you so much indeed. And Will, always a pleasure, lad. And hopefully we'll see each other in the kind of the, the Starship Sova's engine rooms there, cobbling together some great stories there. It's brilliant. Lovely to have you on board there, Will. So, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show there, or through the, the show there, I got a little email and it's from Robbie Sheeran. And he wrote a, like a collection of short stories called Tales from Another Dimension. And it just picked me interest, you know, because he says this collection is strongly influenced by the Twilight Zone. And, you know, the kind of soon as that, and it was just like some of the premises for the short stories, you know what I mean? It's just, I still love science fiction from them kind of them golden, you know, them golden years. It's just, you know, it's it's kind of deep rooted in us. And if kind of Robbie can kind of pull it together and with this collection, the tales from another dimension, you know, if you can get it, be perfect. I haven't read anything. I, I bought it. I bought me, me own, me own kind of pennies there. Cause we're going on holiday and I want to kind of have something to kind of read over there on the plane and kind of round the pool with me pina colada. You know what I mean? So I'll put a link on tales from another dimension, a sci-fi collection. I mean, this is, in a nutshell, this is what kind of, you know, like the little kind of the one-liners, I'd get it. How will H.G. Wells react when he wakes 200 years in the future on a strange planet faced with a terrible truth? That's one story. Two young brothers make a frightening discovery about their neighbours. That one is just kind of like that, almost like, you know, that kind of 50s American vibe feel. What's the next one? Do robots particularly want to rule us all? A scientist goes to extremes to change the future of mankind. But is it possible to change our destiny? Oh, yes, 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 yes. There we go. So, like I say, I'll put a little link in for Robbie Sheeran, Tales from Another Dimension, a sci-fi collection. If you would like to participate and get it, it's on Kindle and paperback. So that is Starship Sofas. What what show we on there? <laughs> it's that big of a number now, was it? 685, put to bed. Hope you enjoyed it, and looking forward, like I say, Nick taking over as the editor, and a big, big fun farewell to Fred, our outgoing editor. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. Time soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 